Welcome to the next episode of Infection Control Matters. It's Phil Russo here, and I'm really looking forward to this chat today. I have with me Associate Professor Deb Friedman, who is an infectious diseases physician, and importantly, she's also the Deputy Chief Health Officer of Victoria in Australia. Welcome, Deb. Thanks very much for having me, Phil. I must declare that um, Deb is also a good friend and longtime colleague. Uh, we have done quite a bit of work together over the years. Deb was actually had played a pivotal role in uh, the past couple of years in Victoria's response to the COVID pandemic. Um, but to, and now you find yourself in the Deputy um, Chief Health Officer role. So, Deb, perhaps just give us a bit of background as to uh, your experience and uh, what got you into this role. Yeah, thanks, Phil. So I guess after many years of clinical practice in infectious diseases, I was actually very keen to move into public health and I'd previously done a Master's of Public Health. And in fact, although I hadn't predicted that we'd have a pandemic, my intention was to move into public health um, in about 2020. And so fortuitously, we did have an opportunity for me, for me to move into public health at that time. Um, there was a call out, as a lot of people would remember, for um, infectious diseases specialists and other professionals to join the Department of Health, especially during our second wave in Victoria in 2020. And I certainly volunteered at that time, um, but I also didn't step back after the initial bit of work was done. Um, there were other opportunities that arose at that time, including leading the infection prevention and control team in the Department of Health which I was well suited to because of my background. And then I guess how I got to Deputy Chief Health Officer was partly opportunity, um, and that was that there was a major change to the structure of public health in Victoria, and the previous Deputy Chief Health Officers were all moving on to work in a more decentralised capacity, working in local public health units. And there was an opportunity, and at that time I applied for the position and I guess I should just clarify that initially I was Deputy Chief Health Officer in the COVID response, but now I'm the Deputy Chief Health Officer in Communicable Diseases, which means that I deal with all communicable diseases aside from COVID currently. Cool. Thanks, Deb. So um, it's, it's quite a, there are certain powers associated with the role. What, what sort of powers do you have? Or give us an example of the sorts of things that would um, come across your desk. So I guess. I guess the first thing is about what the role involves and what it entails is that I lead a team of public health professionals to operationalise the public health responses, and this is on behalf of the Chief Health Officer. And we also provide expert clinical and scientific advice and leadership on issues related to communicable diseases. And then we report to the Chief Health Officer, to the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health, and in, in doing so to the Secretary of the Department and to the Minister for Health. In terms of powers through the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, um, and also because um, we're authorised officers, we have powers where there's a public health risk to take certain actions. And those types of actions typically involve things like treatment orders, testing orders, or sometimes quarantine and isolation orders. Now, obviously, everybody became very familiar with quarantine and isolation because of COVID-19, but that's not the first time that those powers have been used. We certainly have powers when it relates to other communicable diseases that 
could pose a risk to public health, and that might include people with tuberculosis. It might include people with HIV or bloodborne viruses that may pose a risk to other people. So we have powers in those situations that involve testing orders, treatment orders, and as I said, for something that's highly communicable, we could use quarantine and isolation in those settings. So all of those powers were always available to us, but had never been utilised on such a broad scale that the community would have been aware of until COVID nineteen became, you know, became a major global problem. Sure, sure. Okay, so that um, brings me on to the, the our next topic, and because I've seen your name associated with quite a few um, directives or bulletins that have come out of the health department in regards to monkeypox. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about monkeypox and what your role is with that? And also just some background as to what monkeypox is and uh, how many cases we're seeing locally and internationally? Yeah, thanks. Um, So Monkeypox is a zoonotic infection, and it's from a genus of viruses called the orthopox viruses. And we know that smallpox is one of the members of that family. And that family also includes viruses like cowpox virus. The reason that we wouldn't have been familiar with monkeypox is that it's traditionally endemic in some West African countries and Central African countries. And the only time that it has spread outside of those endemic areas has been through return travellers. But interestingly, we'd not seen it in Australia. The reports certainly in recent times had been largely from Europe, the US, and a case in Singapore and Israel of return travellers who had monkeypox, and they were just sporadic individual cases. The other thing that we know about monkeypox is that it can be transmitted by close contact, especially with viral particles, and that usually means some of the skin lesions that people get with monkeypox. There can also be indirect contact through fomite spread, and we know that the best examples of that are contaminated towels and bedding, where we know that either people in the household or potentially um, healthcare workers have become infected through those fomites. Um, The other modes of transmission that I guess are important are that that very close and intimate contact can lead to infection. And Previously, while there had been human-to-human infection that was identified, it was identified as a few nosocomial cases and a few cases of household transmission because people were sharing the same, you know, towels and sheets in the household environment. I think what's been very interesting about the monkeypox outbreak that we're seeing right now is that we're having ongoing chains of transmission in particular risk groups, and this hadn't really been identified before. The other thing to say about monkeypox um, right now is that we know that what we're seeing right now arises from a fairly substantial outbreak that's been taking place in Africa, especially in Nigeria, since 2017. And we know that the strain or the clade that we've got here is the West African clade, and it fits in with cases that were seen in the last couple of years in return travellers to Europe and the US. The other thing to say about monkeypox is that depending on the clade, that can influence the severity and the mortality, Mm -hmm. Um, and that we know that the West African clade that we're seeing right now is fortunately thought to be a less virulent strain and also has a lower mortality than the Central African clade, and that's certainly being demonstrated by the cases 
that have been seen so far where it's thought to be and is currently being demonstrated to be a reasonably mild illness. Okay. Um, so just back to the, the transmission modes, um, the, I think the direct contact is easy to, to get our heads around. You talked about um, skin scales. Now, is that because they are inhaled or exhaled? Is, is there the virus living in the respiratory tract that becomes airborne um, as we've all got to know re really well over the past couple of years? And, and is the airborne transmission playing a role here? So I guess probably just to elaborate a little bit further on transmission, we've got transmission through that direct contact that I mentioned with bodily fluids or the material that's in lesions. We've got indirect contact through fomites. And then we've also got large respiratory droplets that can play a role and that typically means that people would be at risk if they were within 1.5 metres or so of somebody who was um, infected. And that's, you know, what we used to hear from the Americans between, you know, within one foot of somebody with um, an infection that was transmitted via large respiratory droplets. And then the fourth mode of transmission is actually animal to human, and that's either a bite or a scratch from one of the rodents that might be infected with monkeypox or ingesting wild game. But those are the modes of transmission in endemic countries and not here. Sure, great. Okay, so back to the cases here. Have we had local transmission? There is an instance of local transmission that's been demonstrated in Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there was a case in the Sundays who had not travelled and who'd transmitted to somebody else. So that's indicative of local transmission. However, the cases that we've had in Victoria are all imported cases with no evidence of local transmission in Victoria thus far. Okay, and so when somebody is found to have monkeypox, what do you quarantine them? Are they uh, subject to any of your powers, or and are their contacts um, also yeah. affected? Yep. So I guess. Um, as you'd be aware, in terms of responding to a new threat like this, one of the first things that needed to be done, not only locally, but we collaborate nationally and then internationally, is to create a case definition and then also to create what the definition of a contact is and how we're going to manage contacts. So what we have done with contacts of monkeypox cases is they're divided into high-risk contacts medium-risk contacts and low-risk contacts, and I guess just focusing on the high-risk for a moment, which is the most important, um, those are people who are either in the household, have spent more than one night with them, people who've been an intimate or sexual partner, or a healthcare worker who's cared for somebody without any PPE and who's potentially has touched their broken skin. So in those circumstances, for those high-risk contacts, there's been a lot of discussion nationally about how to manage them. And I think that one of the things to acknowledge up front is that very much the COVID-19 pandemic has very much influenced how people respond to the word quarantine. Um, and we, I guess, feel that it would not be largely acceptable to the public to have widespread quarantine of people. And so what's been decided nationally is to take an approach of sort of risk mitigation rather than quarantine. And those measures include asking people to not have intimate contact with other people, to check their temperature daily or even twice daily. Also to not go to sensitive settings, so hospitals, aged care facilities, or to be in contact with people who might be vulnerable, to not donate blood or tissue. 
And then, of course, at the first sign of any symptoms, we ask them to seek medical care. And the reason for that is that in the case of monkeypox, people are not thought to be contagious until they've got symptoms. And those symptoms will either be the sort of prodrome or flu-like symptoms, or they'll be the onset of rash. People are not thought to be contagious before that. And so we have the opportunity to tell people that they can do these things. And I guess the other measure that I forgot to mention was we asked them to work from home if possible. Um, So we hope that those measures will help to contain it. In terms of the cases themselves, however, um, the cases are um, told to isolate and they need to be in isolation until all of their lesions have completely crusted and fallen off um, because they're thought to be contagious until that has occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do what we call active monitoring within public health where we monitor them daily um, with calls and we also can get other clinicians to review them to determine what the status of their rash is to determine when they can come out of isolation. So we isolate cases, but thus far we're not quarantining contacts. Oh, okay. Usual about a week for the lesions to dry up, is that? Um, It can take longer. Yeah. Um, it can t- sometimes take a few weeks. Okay. Um, and so we we sort of have to keep in contact with the cases, as I mentioned, um, very regularly to determine where, where they're up to. What we found thus far is that they're actually only really unwell in the first few days when they've got a sort of prodrome or flu-like illness. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, aside from discomfort from the rash, which might include either pain or itch, they are feeling much better at that time. Right, okay. So um, really, it's most of the situations, it's symptomatic relief um, for, for the cases, yeah. Yeah, now I guess I, I should mention there are some treatments um, that are available for people with monkeypox. Um, one of them is an antiviral, which is referred to as T-pox. We didn't usually um, have this antiviral in Australia, but we now do have it in stock and there's a there's a Commonwealth stockpile that any state can get access to if they have a case that they feel would benefit um, from it. There's not a large amount of data on it. However, Mm -hmm. we know that it's um, well tolerated in animal models and we know that in humans that have had it, they've had a very minimal side effect profile. I think 10% of people get a headache, but it's otherwise very well tolerated. But for the people who have a mild illness, most of them are not ones that would need to be treated. Mm. Um, I guess the other thing that we should say is that for high-risk contacts, we could consider whether or not to use post-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, we've got the option of also using TPOX as post-exposure prophylaxis. Once again, very limited data, other than to say it should be studied as soon as possible after known after they're known to be a contact, typically within four days. Um, the other opportunities that we have, apart from the use of TPOX, is using the traditional smallpox vaccine as post-exposure prophylaxis. Unfortunately, the traditional smallpox vaccine, ACAM 2000, which is the sort of one that we had in Australia, it's um, got a lot of complications that can occur from administration of it, and the most important of which, because it's a live vaccine, is that people can auto-inoculate both themselves and other people. So they potentially could become contagious to other people. So largely in people who've got a fairly mild illness, 
the sort of side effect profile of the vaccine means that it's really not a favourable um, choice for post-exposure prophylaxis. But there is now a third-generation vaccine, which is much better tolerated, which is an attenuated vaccine, which doesn't have the same risks of auto-inoculation, and which we actually now have gotten imported to Australia, and that we could use in high-risk cases. But once again, in people who are otherwise well, not immunocompromised, probably unnecessary in a lot of the cases. That's, that's what I was going to ask you about the vaccine. So it's, it's there, it's available, but really not, not required at this stage. Yeah, so we certainly, we've done everything that we can to make sure that we have it available, especially that third generation vaccine that I mentioned had to be imported and we had to import a reasonable amount of stock for the whole country. Um, that's now been done. And so we have it available and we know that it's got a five-year shelf life. So hopefully it'll be available to us for some time. And I guess the other thing to say is that looking at other jurisdictions, we know that in the UK and the CDC, they are using this third generation vaccine called Genius um, or Ankara. It's got many different names. They're using it for some high and medium risk contacts, ideally within four days of exposure to monkeypox, but up to 14 days afterwards. Okay. So, so we, we now have it set up that we could use it in the same way if required. Um, I guess previously you asked me about the number of cases of monkeypox. And so we've had three in Victoria. There's approximately another five or six within the country. The number in New South Wales was changing yesterday because I, I think they had a suspected case and then they had confirmed cases but it appears to be about eight or nine within the country right now, and they're all on the East Coast. And just from a national scale, um, this might be a bit of a Dorothy Dixer, but what sort of coordination between the states and territories do you do you regularly get together with the other DCHOs and talk about what's happening? So I guess um, with every new public health threat, and we experienced this with Japanese encephalitis as well, initially and very early on, literally on the first day, there's an AHPPC meeting that's um, stood up urgently. Which, which AHPPC is the Australian Health Protection. Protection. And there's another piece, isn't there? Wait <laughs> a moment. Privacy policy. No, no, wait a sec. It's the main committee that advises the um, Chief Medical Officer of Australia. Oh, I think the Chief Medical Officer of Australia actually chairs it. So the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee is um, AHPPC, and it's a key decision-making committee for health emergencies. And so um, my experience so far is obviously it was, it met regularly for COVID-19, but for every new public health threat, and this includes Japanese encephalitis, monkeypox, and will include any other new threat that we have, AHPPC meets urgently um, to discuss the response. And that typically early on involves things like discussing the case definition, management of contacts. It talks about what other jurisdictions are doing and it talks about gaining access to either therapies or other things that might be required. In the case of some pathogens, it might be about how we um, how we um, acquire the capability of testing for it, for example, if there wasn't a known test. So all of those things get discussed and it's got representatives from, you know, laboratories and clinicians, et cetera, and then aside from that, there's another group, CDNA, which is Communicable Diseases Network of Australia. Um, and CDNA obviously meets regularly anyway, but 
CDNA also gets stood up and um, creates working groups to work through things like the case definition and the contact definition and contact management. And that requires the input of representatives from all states and jurisdictions. So we actually meet with them very regularly. And then we all agree on the draft and then the final documents of all of those things that I just mentioned. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, Look, we're going to finish up, but I thought I'd just change tack somewhat dramatically and seek your opinion, Deb. So there's been quite a bit of discussion lately, informally and formally, various venues and amongst particular groups, and certainly uh, as part of the Australasian College for Infection Prevention and Control, I know that it's been a topic that has been coming um, more commonly discussed. The paradigms that we're used to with regards to droplet precautions and airborne precautions clearly have been challenged over the past two years with, with COVID. And essentially what I'm hearing from those in the clinical settings is that it's very difficult now, knowing what we know, to um, apply those you know, categories as they stand. And there's increasing calls for revising the whole airborne versus droplet categories. So, and I think it's a discussion that we're going to have to start having nationally and also internationally. So just curious, with your experience with COVID, your knowledge of infection prevention control in healthcare settings and, and your role now, what are your thoughts? So I guess one thing to say is obviously, as you said, all of our previous thoughts and beliefs have very much been challenged. I think originally this was almost like a bit of a battle between engineering and infection prevention and infectious diseases. And the two sides had very fixed beliefs about um, what the risk was and what constituted the risk in different, you know, droplets. Um, I think the other thing to say is from an infection prevention perspective within Australia, we'd never been in favour of fit testing. We hadn't done it. It wasn't routine anywhere. Whereas we know that in workplaces and industry where... Um, occupational hygienists had worked. That was it was a very important part of what they did in protecting people from the risk of inhalation of harmful particles. So, obviously, our thinking's been challenged. I think what we know is that, and we've always known that droplets vary in size. But I think that we had a very simplistic view. We said large droplets. You're only going to be at risk if you're in one within one meter or 1.5 meters, and that's it. They're going to fall to the ground. There's not going to be any further risk. And then we kind of had this very limited list of things that could be spread by the airborne route: tuberculosis, measles, chickenpox being the prime examples. Where would you know clear out Tullamarine Airport because we knew that they could be spread by the airborne route. But actually, there's probably something partway in between, and I think maybe that's what we've learned is that it really depends on the different situations, the behaviours of the person and the environment that they're in. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest lessons is that while you've got the innate infectivity of a pathogen and then you've got the susceptibility of the population, the other things that are really important are how contagious the individual is. Mm -hmm. And that's going to to depend on the viral load that they might have in their nasopharynx or pharynx, um, it might also involve their behaviours. So are they Mm. actively coughing and sneezing and therefore expelling respiratory droplets into the environment 
And then what sort of contact do you have with that person and the duration of contact? And I think there had been previous research looking at whether or not flu could be airborne. And I think there was a lot of people just saying that that just didn't exist. There couldn't be airborne spread of flu. It was droplet and that's all it was. I think there's evidence that viruses, including influenza, in certain circumstances could potentially be airborne. And I don't think that I mean airborne as in clear out Tullamarine Airport, airborne, mm. but could be airborne within a room or within an environment where someone's got behaviours that could transmit virus. And so I think that the things that I take away from it is that we probably need to be a little bit more open to the idea of droplets don't just behave in one way because they're larger um, and that it's going to depend on behaviours and the exact environment. And so I think we've learned a lot about ventilation. Mm. Um, whether or not that ventilation is going to be required for every viral pathogen, I think is another question. Does it mean that we need to use the same lessons about ventilation to prevent the spread of RSV, for example, or parainfluenza? I don't think we know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think we still learned a lot about ways to reduce transmission. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think one of the big things for me, I think, was the environment, the role the environment plays. You know, clearly tea rooms in hospitals have been a major, you know, location of spread between healthcare workers. And different healthcare services will have different ventilation, different um, environments. So some may be more potentially um, set up a higher risk than, than others, you know, regardless of the type of patient. And, and I was thinking, I guess the other thing that we can all reflect on is that although we're a, a wealthy country and a country of lots of, you know, means and a good healthcare system, if we look at all the hospitals that you and I have worked in over the years, a lot of them have very old buildings, old mm. wards with shared rooms mm. um, where the... Um, ventilation systems were pretty antiquated um, and therefore in order to improve ventilation it's not an easy fix because you actually need to look at the entire um, heating and ventilation air conditioning system um, and so we have had a lot of um, very old buildings that can't necessarily be retrofitted with the optimal ventilation. That can easily be done in sort of newer builds, mm, but mm. it's hard to retrofit. But we, we've, got, we've got some good workarounds, including things like air purification devices, air scrubbers, et cetera, which all help. Um, because we, you know, in a lot of these older hospitals, we have a limited number of negative pressure rooms yeah. and often a limited number of single rooms as well. Yeah, I think that the hospitals of the future are going to be vastly different to the hospitals that we're working in at the moment, aren't they? I think so too. And I think, you know, we've seen some newer hospitals or new wards built where every room is a single room mm. um, with its own ensuite, which is probably, you know, really what the future looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of hospital builds, that's the next generation of builds. Yes, and that's, that's, I guess, really for prevention, that's the hierarchy of controls. It's those engineering controls that we have to get right. That's right. On. Yep, exactly. Look, Deb, we'll, um, we'll finish up there. Um, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute delight to chat to you and good to see you. Um, and um, thanks for telling us all about monkeypox and sharing your opinions with droplets and airborne. Uh, so thank you very much, Deb. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll see you next time on Infection Control Matters.